Hey, it's Veronica Dagger, the host of the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women, the podcast where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're speaking with Tony Ko. She's the founder of NYX Cosmetics. Tony came to the U.S. as a 13-year-old from Korea, and she got started in business almost immediately. It inspired her to launch her own brand, NYX Cosmetics. She was just 26 years old at the time, and her first investor was her mom. That paid off. 15 years later, Tony sold NYX to L'Oreal for a reported $500 million. It sounds like the American dream, but there have been some personal challenges along the way, and especially after she got that big payout. And she's here to tell us about all of it. Tony, you moved to the U.S. from Korea when you were 13. What was that like? Oh, it was very difficult. Um, I was excited, actually, in Korea. Um, I was 13 years old, and, like, when my mom, my parents told me that we were moving to U.S., all I thought was, oh, my God, I'm going to get to eat as many bananas as I can, (laughs) and there's houses with swimming pools and, you know, Disneyland. That's what I thought. Um, But uh, I was put in seventh grade. I did not know how to speak English, and uh, just, like, being Dropped out, dropped off at school, and having to trying to have to learn without knowing the language was really difficult for me. How did you cope with that? Well, um, they have a program called ESL, English as Second Language, for kids like me, um, you children of the immigrants, and uh, you know it's four hours a day of like complete uh, English immersion program. So I did three years of that. I heard you described your father's way of parenting as Spartan style. What does that mean? Oh, my God. Uh, only the strongest survive <laughs> was his parenting skill. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this was back in, this was uh, mostly in Korea. So um, it was acceptable, but it's like borderline child abuse <laughs> oh, if gosh. it was like now yeah. in USA. But, you know, different times in different cultures mm-hmm. and different places, different things are accepted. So uh, back in Korea, like in the 80s, it was completely accepted to get like spanking and, you know, things like that. But he was, uh, he was, my father was excessive. Like he used to feed us coffee in elementary school. So to make us stay up to study. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, like we used, we had this mountain uh, called, we used to call it Mount Everest. <laughs> uh, it's like a, a rocky cliff mountain that was probably about like uh, more like a hill. It was probably about like two, three stories high. And he used to make us climb it up without safety gear. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he always say only the strongest survive. And what do you think of that now? Yeah, it shaped me who I am. Uh, there was a moment in my life when I resented him for the way he raised us. But um, as I grow older, you know, I get to appreciate some of the uh, the things that he has instilled in me because um, it, sh- it shaped me the way I am. And I am mentally very strong. I would imagine. So you didn't start out in makeup. You started out in your parents' business, which I believe was a perfume Perfume and cosmetics. Cosmetics. So, uh, you know, um, as being the immigrants, uh, what you do is you start a small business. 
like when you look at a lot of the small businesses started by immigrants, right? Um, so my mom had this opportunity to buy this small little tiny store selling perfumes and cosmetics, and she invested all of her savings, and we bought this tiny little store. And uh, I used to go work at the store like every after school, every weekends, every vacation, and my mom. Um, and we were retailing uh, designer fragrances and uh, cosmetics, and it was like brands like Jordache and La Femme and like Jordache. Diana, like these are like the old, old, old brands. And uh, my mom turned out to be an amazing businesswoman. And that little store was such a huge success that we ended up expanding the store and uh, we were operating multiple uh, locations. Then we folded everything and we started a wholesale distribution business. So now we were the wholesaler distributor selling to the retailers. Um, So that's kind of how I learned how to do business from being that hands-on experience at a retail store and then at a uh, distributor like wholesale uh, business where I was managing accounts. So I really got to see, and me being the consumer myself, right? I really got to see the whole scope of a business. What's the biggest business lesson she taught you? Uh, my mom has taught me diligence, work hard, number one. I mean, it's cl- very cliche, but really, nothing beats hard work. Nothing beats hard work. And, uh, you know, um, that. Only good deal is when everybody wins. You, your vendors, your customers, everybody. I always tell my vendors, like, I don't actually bargain like crazy with my vendors as well. I don't try to negotiate them down down to nothing because I want them to be profitable. They have to be profitable to stay afloat, to run products for me. Right. And then I want to but I want to be fair at a price point where I am profitable myself and I want to give enough discounts to my customer where they're profitable, too. So all three parts has to be profitable for the business to to, for the wheel to turn. So you worked with your parents until you were in your mid 20s. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You decided to leave then. How come? Yeah, it was ridiculous. I was 25 years old, living at home. I'm on, my mom never paid me. She was, you know, you have roof over your head and clothes on your back and food in your belly. Like, what do you need? Oh, she was, I was on an allowance. I was 25 years old. Oh, I was yeah. on an allowance. And uh, my friends were now, like, out of school. They're getting jobs. And I'm like, wait, they make money. I don't. <laughs> like, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> And uh, so uh, I decided to, not, but not that wasn't just that. Like my mom is the matriarch of the family, and I was coming to coming to an age where I was having my own ideas of how we should run the family business, and and we were clashing, we we're butting heads every day, and we we're fighting so much. And I left the family business when I was about twenty five, and I was actually gonna just get a job, um, and uh, but I. Just real, like I'm just I'm just not the nine to five person, and I I knew that I would. And I'm very stubborn. I don't. <laughs> I would probably be a, a horrible employee if I was one. Um, so uh, and then I saw like this like gap in the market. I saw niche um, uh, expensive pr- products were really good, but they were super expensive. I couldn't afford it. Most of my friends cannot afford it. But then the cheapies that you bought at drugstores were like really horrible. And I just thought like, hey, you know what? Like I had learned enough in the beauty industry and I know what I want myself. I want, I know what my friends want. I could launch a brand and I decided to put it into action. 
What did your mom tell you about the risks of entrepreneurship? She wrote me a check. And For how she, much? Uh, $250,000. Nice. Yeah. Very, she's a very smart woman. She's... I've paid her so much interest on, <laughs> on that money, and then now I'm her, I'm her 401k. <laughs> She's a very smart woman. Um, yeah, so uh, she, and then she hands me the check, and she's, my, she's ballsy, my mom. That woman has guts. She says to me, she goes, you know what? Don't worry about failing. Do whatever you want to do. It's better to have that experience when you're in your 20s than in later on in your life. Do whatever you want to do. Wow. That was it? Coming up, Tony explains how she built NYX into a million-dollar cosmetics company and why selling it wasn't the dream she thought it would be. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. So you started your company with that $250,000 check from your mom. How soon did you know it was a viable business? Uh, the first year, I launched with just the lip liners and eyeliners. And the first year, I sold $4 million worth of products in retail. So I, because I was only wholesaling, I sold uh, net, my net sale revenue was $2 million, which oh. translates to $4 million in retail. Okay, so you made $2 million in revenue in your first year. How long did it take you to get into major drugstores? That took a long time. I could not get into any of these large accounts, probably uh, 10 years. So Nix was started in 1999, and I exited the business in 2014. I had the company for 15 years. It's not an overnight sensation. I mean, you know, there's a lot of work that went in, right? Uh, so initially, I was just selling to uh, boutiques mom-and-pop stores, boutiques. Um, and then um, I got to a certain point where I really needed to get into, like, you know, the large fours, like the CVS, Walgreens, you know, um, Rite Aid, uh, Walmart, or Ulta. Um, but I just couldn't find my way in because um, no one really wants to take a chance on a brand that is not in any of the large retail stores because you don't have that kind of a data to present, right? So um, I needed to, that's when I actually brought in my investors because um, I realized one day that this is a, a, a hard, like a wall that I couldn't climb mm -hmm. over myself. And I needed to uh, partner with somebody who had the right connections. And so the investor came in, and then what did they introduce you to? To the right sales reps, which I is super important. Okay. Yeah. Did you get Ulta or one of the, the big names, and then that helped you get other big the, names? Uh, the fir very first big account that I went into was Ulta. And then the next, like, really sensational moment was getting into Target. 
What did that feel like? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I never went to Target so <laughs> so much like when we first, when we launched. Yeah. Oh my god! Just walking up and down and up and down the aisle, like looking at it, and like if they saw a CCTV, they would think <laughs> there's like a crazy person because <laughs> I was like a fly attached to that wall, like cleaning every product, and I would buy all the like I would go to these stores, and you know, like there's damaged products, right? I would buy the damaged products. Wow. And, you know, whenever I was at a, at a checkout, they're like, you want this? <laughs> <laughs> it's half broken. Or like, I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> hilarious. Were you out there saying like, oh, I'm going to go out to dinner tonight because look, I've got this, I'm in Target or I'm going to go buy myself a great new car. Like, did you do any of that during no. this time? No, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Okay. Um, because, okay, so this may sound cheesy, but my motto was, I'd rather buy a building than a Birkin. Wow. <laughs> and how did you get that motto? Uh, just by seeing my mother work hard and, uh, you know, I realized very early on that it is so easy to spend money, but it is so hard to make money. Mm. And... It's not about how much money you make. It's about how much money you spend. You could make a million bucks, call yourself a millionaire, but if you're spending million two, you're in debt. Mm. When so, do you get to have fun with it, though? Uh, I order. I bought eight Birkins in one day after I sold my company. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so you did become a Birkin girl <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I had a moment. Yeah, I had a moment. moment. Yeah, hey, you were entitled. I had a moment. What was it like for your company to become a household name? I still feel very proud of the fact that I can't believe, like, you know, when I first started the company, I would look at brands like Revlon or L'Oreal and just like, you know, oh, my God, like these global brands. And the fact that I've actually built one brand like that, I was in Scotland over the summer in Edinburgh and I saw NYX Cosmetics. I was in Bordeaux. I saw Nick's store. I was just coming off from the airport in JFK. There's a Nick's store at so Delta cool. Terminal. Like just seeing Nick's yeah. everywhere, it's just it's surreal. Uh, so you reportedly sold Nick's to L'Oreal for a reported half a billion dollars. Yeah, I cannot comment on I that. Know you can't yeah, that figure, but how did that deal come about? We went out actively marketed ourselves. So I hired a banker to represent uh, the exit of the business. Um, it was a long process, and uh, I the whole process was about nine months in total. Um, and you know, once I brought in my investors, uh, they were my minority partners. Uh, when you take a dollar from investors, basically you have to have an exit plan, right? Why would invest? or just invest money in your company if it's going to sit there for 20 years. So usually the uh, timeline is anywhere between five to seven years on average. And we were hitting that five-year mark by 2014. And, uh, you know, they were, I was getting the nudge from my investors. <laughs> uh, suddenly, there's this parade of bankers coming through my door. I'm like, I get it. Okay, you want me to sell the company? And um, I was actually at a point where um, I was like, I was kind of like ready to to sell the company as well. Um, I had the company for 15. I started when I was 26 and um, I was now turning 40 and I was looking at my life and I was go- and 
I was in um, I, ha- I was married for a very short period of time. Uh, so like I, I always say like I sometimes I forget that I was married, but I had no children. I was married at that point. And I was like, yeah, what have I done with my life? Like I started having like these like I maybe it was my midlife crisis. Um, but and then this is when everybody started to talk about work life balance. And I was like, I have zero balance. I live out of my suitcase. I have no life. Um, I have a dog. I can't even take care of my dog well enough. I have to bring in a living nanny for my dog because I was so absent all the time. And I looked at my life. I'm like, what have I accomplished? Do you think some people would be surprised by that? I mean, I think they would because they would look at your life and they say, oh, my gosh, she's got this amazing job. She travels around the world. She built this famous company. You know, she's got a dog. I want a dog. You know, she's (laughs) she's got, you know, she has everything going for her. Yes. um, Yeah, it sounds that way, right? But I, whenever there's these uh, um, young people coming into workforce. And, you know, I think they have this fantasy about entrepreneurial um, or entrepreneurism. Is Mm -hmm. that the right way to say it? Mm and especially like in the fashion business or like the beauty business, because from the surface, it looks so glamorous, right? Yeah. But it really is not, you know? I pack boxes. I I move, like I used to like lift boxes that are 30, 40 pounds, and I consider it a workout. Uh, yeah, after moving 130-pound boxes, it's like I don't need to go to the gym today. <laughs> <laughs> that was my workout. Um, but at the end of the day, it's work. Right. It's a career for me because it's a work that I love to do. Um, But at the end of the day, it's work and it's not glamorous at all. It's a lot of headache. You know, bigger the company, bigger the headache, Mm. bigger the company, bigger the stress. Mm. Um, And this is so very true. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it doesn't matter how successful an entrepreneur is. Everybody has a conversation with themselves. Yeah. Would you elaborate more on sort of the personal sacrifices you've had to make in order to be successful? Oh, gosh. Uh, how about no life? <laughs> uh, we could start there. Um, I was married. Uh, it was a very short marriage. I was only married for 15 months. And uh, now I, like, look back and I'm like, oh, my God, like, poor man. <laughs> Uh, he would ask me, like, what do you want for dinner? And I used to just go off because I'm like, I don't care what we eat for dinner. Like, uh, because I was making decisions all day at work. I like, see. you have this brain fatigue by the end of night, right? And uh, he was probably trying to be very kind and generous by asking me what I wanted for dinner. But, like, that was one more question that I had to come up with an answer for and that was that would like drive me crazy or like that would push me over the edge and yeah yeah so those kind of things so many decisions mm-hmm. what about motherhood i know you've said that's been on your radar and, yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah so i when i got married i actually got married to uh, start a family um i was already a little bit getting older, older for having children. So we immediately went to a fertility doctor to see, like, if we could, um, you know, get the family planning going. Um, unfortunately, like, during that whole process, uh, we ended up 
separating and we ended up you know, filing for divorce. So I was having these visits to fertility. Like I was on this, this road again and I got, and you know, I was, I was divorced and, you know, I decided that I was just gonna go ahead with the process, uh, without being married because, you know, um, by 41, probably 41, um, you know, like if I were to like, like go on a date and like meet another, find another person that I actually want to have children with. Mm-hmm. I did not know how many years that was going to take. And uh, I and I decided that I was just going to go ahead myself. So uh, I ended up going through the process and I uh, had uh, um, embryos mm-hmm. frozen. And uh, um, I was now looking for surrogates. And, you know, it's not easy because I physically cannot get pregnant myself, mm-hmm. uh, medical reasons. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, finding a surrogate is not easy. Mm. It's not like you go out and hire a surrogate. Surrogate has to select you. It's oh. not you selecting the surrogate. Surrogate has to select you. You have to be qualified for the surrogate. Mm. Finding the uh, surrogate itself took about um, more than a year. That's a long process. And finally, you know, everything was ready. Like, I have my embryos all. Like, I had six. Unfortunately, I had six. Um, and I was finally matched with the surrogate. And this was such an amazing process. And uh, it was go time. It was a successful implant. Just because you have a successful implant does not mean the pregnancy will be successful. I did not know that. Mm. I wish my doctor had told me. Mm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we had to uh, uh, terminate the pregnancy because um, medical reasons. Um, you know, the 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 sac attached and then sac grew, but then the yolk didn't grow. So you know, I lost my baby. Uh, not me, the surrogate, but you know, I lost yeah. my baby. So that was so sad. Yeah. Um, but I still had hope because uh, I still had three more embryos left. And we decided that we were going to go for the second round. And second round was going to be a huge success. Uh, so second uh, insemination, another success. And, you know, we we're like, oh, my God, like this time, like this is going to happen. Um, and it did happen. It was beautiful like at seven weeks we're sitting at that we're we're at the hospital and we see the little heartbeat Uh, but um I think something I think the doctor felt something was a little off because at that point they would let the surrogate go see her normal gynecologist not the fertility specialist the doctor but he had asked her to come back on week eight and uh, um, we went, um, she she got there first, and I walked into the room, and I saw her face, and I don't know, something about me, I, ju- I just got this sense, like, she wasn't pregnant, I, like, I had that sense, and, uh, you know, like, you know, there, she's getting her test done, and um, when the doctor who was doing the test had to go find somebody else, I mm. kind of already knew something wasn't good. 
And then, the, uh, you know, the main doctor walked in. And, and like, as soon as I saw her face, I'm like, oh, this is not a good news. And yeah, so we lost a heartbeat in eight weeks. And at this point, I'm like, I'm like, oh, my God, like, we have no more no more eggs or no more embryo. Like, this is it. Like, I would never be a, I would never be a mother to my biological children. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Such a difficult moment, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I had to go through that. And, uh, you know, these are, like, I want to talk about this because a lot of the times, like, I get on my Instagram, <laughs> like, some, like, how do you do it all? Like, you know, mm -hmm. like, or... Some, you know, they there there are a lot of the times comments like, you know, like you're successful, you have all of this and da 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 da. Like people compare themselves mm. all the time, right? Yeah. Because on social media, no one's really posting anything that like Negative. the moments like this. Right. So, you know, I want everybody to know that there's not a single person in this world with that perfect life. Doesn't matter what we show on our Instagram, everybody goes through personal turmoils in their life. We're just not blasting it on social media. And I don't think so those true. are, like, things like that, like what I had to go through, like, it's not something that I want to blast to the world on social media, right? Yeah. So the only reason that I, decided to talk about this, like on public stage like this, is because not everybody's life is perfect and you should not compare your life to what you see on social media. Wow, I appreciate you sharing your story. How did you move on from that? Yeah, so uh, that's about being resilient, right? So, you know, you could sit there and just like all day long contemplate about coulda, woulda, shoulda scenarios, like why, or just feel sorry for yourself and like going to these mental space, right? Um, but, you know, the, I think the true resilience is when you are able to um, control your thoughts. Mm. So live now and live for the future than living in the past. Put that. Mm. It happened already. These are facts that you can, like, what am I going to do? Like sit there, feel sorry for myself and, uh, you know, be prisoner of that? Or do I say, okay, it happened. It's unfortunate. What do I do next? So my next decision was to adapt. Hmm. Right. So now I have my uh, adoption application all lined up. I'm sorry. waiting for my home study now. Um, and you figure out the next move. So you started the sunglass company, even though so many people said, "No, don't, I know. don't do it," because what do they call that? The um, the sophomore curse, yeah. right? Where if you start a second company after selling your it first, fails. you may yeah. not be as successful. Yeah. So especially my attorney, he was like, "Tony, don't do it." I didn't. It's like I don't know any person who was who's who's built a successful second company, and I was like, "Oh, like I don't care. Like I'm just gonna do it." And uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't a success. Um, I've launched the brand as Perverse Sunglasses, and then along the way, I've rebranded it to Thomas James LA, and I still have the business, but I had to shut down all of my retail stores. I'm still in negotiation with some of the retail outlet, uh, the landlords, um, and, uh, and um, 
I'm only focusing on e-com right now, but I'm not putting any more marketing time or dollars into this business. Um, I'm just letting it grow organically and see where it goes. Um, and But right now, my focus is my third company, <laughs> which is Bespoke Beauty Brands. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Bespoke Beauty Brands, the easiest way to explain it is that it's a beauty incubator. Um I partner with influencers, celebrities, or entrepreneurs, um, and we build a brand together on an equity deal. The ups and downs of entrepreneurship, huge success and then struggle and then hopefully big success again. How do you deal with that ego-wise? I would think that that can be difficult. I am so humbled from the failure of my second company <laughs> that I have zero ego left in me. Gotcha. And that was the biggest plus that I got from the second business. And it's about making lemon. You know, they say make lemonade out of lemon. But you know what? Make, let's make some limoncello. Make it better <laughs> than lemonade. Um, so financially, yes. Egotistically, Yes, huge loss from the second brand. But you know what? It humbled me, which is the best thing for my third business. And the best thing that happened is it kept me in touch with the current landscape of the business. If you'd like to hear more of Secrets of Wealthy Women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>